0: Snop Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It is Tuesday the 14th of December. I'm Tom Tilly joined by Katrina Blowers.
1: Yeah, so Tom, COVID has so far killed uh, 2,100 Australians and we've taken pretty drastic measures to keep that figure so low. So you might be surprised to know how many people smoking kills every year. It's about 10 times that.
0: Yeah, it kills 20,000 people a year and wipes 10 years off the life expectancy of smokers according to the Federal Health Department. So, We did so much against COVID. Why aren't we doing more against smoking? Should we ban it is the question we're asking in this briefing.
1: So that's what they're doing in New Zealand. Last week, they announced a ban, which means anyone 14 or younger will never be able to legally buy cigarettes at any stage in their lifetime.
0: So in this briefing, we'll explain how their ban works and discuss whether we should do it here or whether they're missing the point given vaping is a bigger problem for young people. First, here are today's headlines.
1: The UK Parliament will vote on reintroducing masks indoors today as the PM, Boris Johnson, warned a tidal wave of Omicron is coming and reported the country's first death from the variant.
0: In a televised address, Johnson says everyone 18 and older will be offered a booster by the end of the year. So it's pretty quick. It's less than three weeks away. That's a month earlier than the previous target.
2: We're opening up centres uh, across the country. We're getting in the, uh, the army to, to help with the, the logistics And what we need now is for the public to respond. Get boosted now.
1: Case numbers are edging towards around 50,000 a day now in the UK. Now, Tom, that's close to the 60,000 daily cases. That was the peak during their biggest wave during winter there.
0: Yeah. So case numbers are looking pretty concerning in the UK. So far, the Omicron strain represents 40% of cases in London, but it's expected to become the dominant strain there within 48 hours. So moving quickly that that growth curve.
1: Yeah. And we should say that even though uh, that death, that first death has been reported so far, only 10 people with Omicron are in hospital in the UK.
0: Yeah. After thousands of cases. So yeah, we're watching closely, how harmful this new variant is. Early indications are that it's milder than Delta, but people are still holding their breath.
1: Western Australia Premier Mark McGowan has confirmed his state will reopen to the rest of Australia and the world on February 5.
2: This state is locked in, giving Western Australians and local businesses certainty and the ability to plan and be ready for the transition early next year. This is a date that some in the community have been waiting to hear for a long time.
0: Yeah, it's still a long way away, but yeah, I think he's right there. Certainty is important in these uncertain times. So from that date... Fully vaxxed domestic and international travellers will be allowed into WA quarantine-free, but they may have to get tested upon arrival depending on the length of their stay in WA.
1: So Premier McGowan was making that announcement on the day the state hit 80% vax coverage for 12 and over. He says he's pretty confident that will rise to 90% double vaxxed in time for that border opening.
0: And Australia's first mRNA vaccine production line will be set up in Victoria under a deal between the state and federal governments and Moderna.
1: So this is going to happen from 2024, which says to me, Tom, that uh, we're going to be getting vaccinated for COVID Mm. for quite some time to come. Uh, They're going to be able to produce 25 million doses with capacity ramping up eventually to 100 million.
0: Yeah, so mRNA vaccines, uh, which includes Pfizer and Moderna, have been praised for their effectiveness and they're the only vaccines cleared for boosters in Australia. And so far, we've only been able to produce the other kind of vaccine, the viral vector vaccine, AstraZeneca. So it's going to be a big boost to be able to produce our own mRNA vaccines and not have to worry about importing them from other countries, which is the reason we got so far behind in our rollout initially. (laughs)
1: Australia and South Korea have struck a $1 billion defence deal as the Korean president became the first world leader to visit since Australia's border reopened.
0: Moon Jae-in announced the deal alongside Scott Morrison in Canberra and it's the largest defence deal signed between Australia and any Asian nation and will see a Korean company provide 30 artillery pieces and a range of vehicles to Australia.
1: So this is another great example, I guess, of production being done locally here in Australia. It's going to begin at a facility near Geelong next year. So some good news for Victoria in the briefing today.
0: Yeah. And Scott Morrison also used the appearance with the Korean leader to confirm that our border would reopen with South Korea from Wednesday, as well as Japan and also the international visa holders who had been delayed for the last two weeks when Omicron started. They have... um, unpause that delay. And so those students and uh, foreign workers will be able to come mm. into the country now. So that's Scott Morrison really staying the course on reopening in the face of the Omicron wave that, you know, we heard earlier in the program Boris Johnson so worried about in the mm. UK.
1: Deputy PM Barnaby Joyce has called for Julian Assange not to be extradited to the US, saying he should face court in the UK or even be deported to Australia.
0: Yeah, Barnaby Joyce is making a fair bit of noise from his quarantine in America. Yeah, where he's, he's bored,
1: st- I think. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> so he spoke out in, in support of Assange as a backbencher, and now he's doing it as a deputy prime minister. That holds a, a fair bit more weight. He told News Corp that even though he doesn't like Assange personally, he believes it's wrong for the Aussie to be sent to the US because he wasn't on American soil at the time of his alleged offences.
1: Yeah, Joyce is also saying that extradition would in fact set a dangerous precedent and could mean that Aussies in the UK could be subject to laws from other countries.
0: Yeah, Julian Assange could face up to 175 years in jail for allegedly publishing the classified military documents, but there was assurances that he wouldn't be put in solitary confinement and that he could actually serve out his time in an Australian prison. So, yeah, there's a lot happening in the Assange case mm. at the moment. Britain's High Court decision last week overturned a previous decision which said he shouldn't be extradited to the US because of um, suicide concerns, but now it's looking more likely that he will be extradited. pretty interesting to see Barnaby Joyce speaking out on this. Kind of su- surprised me, to be honest.
1: Yeah, it is. So we'll have to see how this case develops. I think it's a fascinating case. It's been going on for quite some time now. As you mentioned, there are those mental health concerns and his partner has been speaking out saying how much she fears that, that this extradition could impact that even further. So yeah, I'm really following this one quite closely.
0: Well, yeah, I wonder if Barnaby Joyce has gone completely rogue on this, or which is probably the case knowing him, <laughs> or, or whether there is like a sort of a, a decision from within the coalition party room where some people start speaking out and political momentum builds on the Assange mm. situation. Um, if you remember, it's not a direct comparison, but David Hicks during the Howard era, yeah, that was political pressure that ended up changing that situation and getting him out of Guantanamo Bay and back to Australia. So it'd be interesting to see if the tide starts to turn on Assange. All right, in just a moment, we're talking about New Zealand's um, tobacco ban. And also, don't forget to sign up for the newsletter. It's going to be kicking off next year, so you want to be on the inside track on that one. Jump into our Instagram bio. There's a link there, and you can be one of the first people to get the briefing newsletter next year.
1: If you're a Kiwi and your birth date is after 2010, you will never be able to walk into a shop in your lifetime and buy a packet of cigarettes. That is the goal of new laws that are getting a huge amount of press because they'd make New Zealand one of the most hardline anti-smoking countries in the world.
0: So it's called the smoke-free 2025 plan. And Like Australia, New Zealand's done really well in reducing the number of people that smoke. They're down to 11%, which is the same as us. But the problem's still quite big in the Maori population where 31% of people still smoke.
1: So this plan would mean a creeping age ban on cigarette sales. So from 2025, anyone 14 or younger can never buy cigarettes legally. That age limit will move up each year. So doing the maths in 2050, anyone younger than the age of 39 wouldn't be allowed to buy tobacco. The year 2080, only people aged 69 and older would be allowed to. And then uh, by the end of this century, Tom, tobacco sales are pretty much over unless you uh, intend to smoke in your 80s and 90s.
0: Yeah, so lots of questions. There's the freedom debate. There's also the question about how this fits with New Zealand's more liberal vaping policy. Um, and vaping is a big issue for young yeah. people. So to thrash it all out, we've got Chris Bullen with us. He's a professor of public health at the University of Auckland. Chris, thanks for joining us. What brought on this big change?
2: The underpinnings uh, began when there was an inquiry by the Māori Affairs Select Committee uh, around a decade ago which looked at the massive difference there was between smoking in Māori and non-Māori New Zealanders and it really has led to major differences in health outcomes. So about two years of the difference in life expectancy, that's about seven years between Māori and non-Māori New Zealanders, is due to tobacco smoking. It's very common in Māori. It's coming down, but it's very slow. And as a result of that inquiry, a smoke-free 2025 goal was established. And then the years have kind of ticked over and we haven't seen any action from the government apart from tweaking our standard tobacco control policies and we're all getting a bit nervous that we'd get to 2025, and some would have made it down to five percent prevalence. You know, the great majority of the population, but we'd leave population groups like Maori and Pacific and people with mental health problems where smoking is very common. We'd leave them behind, and so this has really been the result of advocacy and a political will to put in place a clear plan with clear goals and timelines to try and achieve that aspirational smoke-free New Zealand 2025.
0: Okay, but it's not really the case that nothing's been done in the last few years. You've brought in plain packaging. Here in Australia, that was one of the most recent sort of changes we made, but it came after a long history of policy change going back to 92 when we banned advertising and did away with the Winfield Cup, which was the National Rugby League comp. And then we jacked up the excise massively over the last 30 years. So we've made it really expensive the graphic warnings, and more recently, the plain packaging. Have you done the same thing in New Zealand? Have you done everything else, similar to what we've done, before you've gone to this final, fairly strong step of banning them?
2: Well, we'll come back to whether we use the word banning or not later. But yes, we have essentially built on the evidence base that has been developed around the globe for what works. And certainly price is unquestionably the most important way of stopping young people taking up smoking and also helping some people to think twice about continuing Mm. to smoke. But we've kind of reached where we think peak tax on tobacco, where it's becoming punitive because there's a strong, what we call a socioeconomic gradient in tobacco smoking in the population where poorer people smoke more and suffer the outcomes more, despite the price. And there's also been an increase in ram raids on corner dairies selling tobacco. So it's become a sought-after black market commodity. Probably the levers of price have been used to the maximum effect. So you're right, we've gone down the standard packaging, graphic warning labels. We've recently introduced smoke-free and vape-free cars. We've had an amendment to our smoke-free environments legislation to embrace what we call regulated products, which is e-cigarettes principally here in New Zealand, to see them as a tool to helping some people to quit smoking rather than something that's particularly uh, bad. It's a little different, but built around a lot of the same sort of evidence and strategies that Australia has followed.
1: So let's get into the nitty gritty. People who are aged 14 and under when these laws pass will actually never be legally able to buy tobacco. So it kind of works a bit like an age ban. I mean, we're using that word ban that moves each year. Can you explain how that works? Yeah,
2: so actually, I'd just like to make it really clear that uh, the, smoke, the young person who may go to a store and ask for tobacco is not actually going to be penalised. The onus is on the seller, the retailer. So the ban is on the sale. It will be illegal to sell tobacco. It's not actually strictly illegal to buy if you get the difference. So it's not banning people from smoking tobacco. It's limiting their access. The idea is to create a whole future cohort of young people who never smoke because we know that most smokers start smoking in their Uh, teenage years. That's where our historical bulge of current smokers started smoking, and they find it incredibly difficult to give up.
1: When I heard about these laws, my first reaction was, well... The young people that I know, they're not smoking cigarettes anyway, like most young people are now vaping. And, you know, there's been studies done in New Zealand that show over a quarter of young people in high school have admitted to vaping Mm -hmm. pretty regularly. And given that these laws don't seem to touch vaping, I sort of wondered whether it had really missed the point.
0: Yeah, and there's a tougher approach on tobacco, but a, a much more liberal approach than us on vaping.
2: I hear what you're saying around, you know, you think there's sort of an imbalance, but really, as I said, there's a gradient of harm and smoking tobacco is right up there as the most risky form of receiving nicotine, whereas vaping is much less harmful. But I'm not promoting young people taking it up. What young people are doing with vaping at the moment is experimenting. And the research in New Zealand, there's some good research that's been conducted and there's also some pretty flawed research. So the study you're referring to was, I think, 25%. was fundamentally poorly designed and I wouldn't put any weight on that. So you think it's Um, much lower than 25%? I think every year an organisation in New Zealand called ASH Action for Smoking and Health undertakes a massive study of 14- and 15-year-old New Zealand kids at school. And their vaping rates have been going up year on year. But at the same time, the smoking rates have dropped. So I just want to make the point that smoking is already on its way out for young people. So I don't think it's going to be a big issue because the demand for it won't be high anyway. So this uh, smoke regeneration's, is, I don't think, a point. But coming back mm-hmm. to vaping in young people, yes, we should be concerned if young people who don't smoke take up vaping as some sort of lifestyle behaviour. And there is some debate about how many of them are actually doing it regularly and how many are just trying a friend's vape once or twice. Mm. Some of the questions that are asked in these surveys aren't particularly specific about the frequency with which they're vaping and how dependent they are on the vapes. Yeah, But I think that's signalled in the strategy is actually more investment in health promotion and education for young people and parents and communities about mm. vaping. I think the point that we're honing in on here is that with your policy settings,
0: you could potentially be doing the right thing by the Maori population by restricting access to cigarettes, but potentially putting your general youth population at greater risk by a more liberal approach to vaping, which seems to be a bigger problem for that cohort.
2: In actual numbers, it's actually not that huge. And I think that it will be more of a fad than a permanent lifestyle based on the evidence that we have that most of the young people who are vaping regularly are also likely to be involved in other risky behaviours like binge drinking and also smoking as well. Since vaping has become a thing in the last few years in New Zealand, we've seen smoking rates in young people go down rather than going back up. So the argument about Vaping becoming a pathway to smoking, I don't think, stands up. So that's number one. Number two, your point about the greater good being Mm. at risk for a few people. That's sort of in the realms of philosophy around health equity and what we might do in order to trade off a lot of harm for a fewer number of people versus a small amount of harm for a lot of people. And you kind of have to stack up the numbers there. But let's say this, that the Maori population is a very young population and they're a growing proportion of our New Zealand population. So whilst at the moment it's about 15% Maori and about, say, 5 to 7% Pacific, in 2050 that's going to look very different. There'll be a lot more Maori and Pacific in New Zealand. So I think what we do for them now is going to determine their futures. And so I think this investment is one of thinking about the greater good for all New Zealanders actually who are going to look very different to our current lot.
0: That was Chris Bullen, Professor of Public Health at the University of Auckland. That was really interesting, that part of the interview, Katrina, about the trade-off on vaping, that he's talking mm-hmm. about reducing severe harm to a minority of their population, the Maori population, but mm. risking a small amount of harm to the whole population of young people through vaping and he's saying that that trade-off like the amount of good they're doing for the Maori population is worth Mm. the the small but widespread amount of harm that vaping might do to young people.
1: In the short term, I guess that is a good strategy. You've got to hand it to them. In the longer term, I'm concerned about that bringing about behavioural change. He seems to think that vaping is just a fad. Mm. I guess we'll see how that plays out in the longer term. Are you just replacing one habit with another? And we also don't know the long-term health consequences for vaping yet.
0: And then we get to the question of whether we should do it here. It's a tricky one. I feel uncomfortable about an all-out ban. I mean, we've done so much to make smoking inaccessible. The places you can do it are so restricted. The the price is so high. The warnings are so strong and so graphic. We've stripped out basically all of their marketing from advertising to packaging. I still feel like someone should, if they choose to do that in their own private space where they're not going to impact another person, that's a choice we should still give them. It feels weird to say that because we're talking about something so harmful though.
1: When you say impact on another, the consequences of second hand smoke are still so great. So it's such a tough one and uh, I'd love people to give us their thoughts on Instagram. Let us know what you think.
0: And I guess we have done this with drugs which arguably hasn't worked because people can still access them and, and use them but they aren't regulated and controlled properly which could be an argument here that you know, you're sort of boosting the black market even further by doing this, which brings more harmful products that don't have some of the controls of better regulated products. Tomorrow on The Briefing, Omicron in the UK. Listener.